The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Modern Management of ITP, Thinking Beyond the Conventional Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GAS860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Cindy Nunert from Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York. Welcome to this educational activity, Modern Management of ITP, Thinking Beyond Conventional Therapies. In a few moments, we'll take an animated tour of the current state of ITP, including approved therapies and unmet needs. Let's first start by taking a closer look at the etiopathogenesis of ITP. Specific to ITP, the incidence is about 1.6 to 3.9 per thousand patient years, with a prevalence of 9.5 to 23.6 per 100,000 person years. It can occur in all ages, and in young adults, it seems to be more common in females, but the gender distribution does become more equal over time, particularly in children and populations over 65 years old. ITP in children tends to be very self-limited, with about 80% of cases resolving spontaneously within six months. In adults, however, ITP usually develops a much more persistent or chronic disease course, making it slightly different and more difficult and challenging to treat. The pathogenesis of ITP is really complex, and there's still components of it that remain unknown. And it's not fully understood. However, we do recognize that the end result is antiplatelet antibody production. We believe this process begins with platelet glycoprotein 2B3A recognized as an autoantibody. Antibody-coated platelets bind to FC receptors and are internalized and degraded by antigen-presenting cells. These cells not only degrade glycoprotein 2B3A, but also may generate cryptic epitopes from other platelet glycoproteins. Activated antigen-presenting cells express these peptides on the cell surface along with co-stimulatory help and the relative cytokines that facilitate the proliferation of initiating CD4-positive T-cell clones. B-cell immunoglobulin receptors that recognize additional platelet antigens activate to proliferate and synthesize anti-glycoprotein 1B9 antibodies. As well, they amplify the production of anti-glycoprotein 2B and 3A antibodies, perpetuating the cycle and resulting in autoimmune destruction of the platelets. We know that there's reduced tolerance to self as patients exhibit B-cell inhibitory FC receptor regulation, down regulation, T-regulatory cell down regulation, and B-regulatory cell down regulation. This is coupled with an increase in cytotoxic T-cells, the Th1 to T2 ratio, Th17 cells, as well as altered cytokines. Diagnosis of ITP is always one of exclusion after considering the complex differential diagnosis. It's defined as a platelet count less than 100,000 in the absence of any red or white cell abnormalities. Patients can have anemia if there's significant bleeding present. The key to making the diagnosis is review of the peripheral blood smear in which you will identify a few large to normal platelets with no red or white cell abnormalities. HCV and HIV testing are recommended for all patients and a bone marrow examination is not uniformly needed if a patient has typical ITP. Additional testing is not recommended for patients with ITP routinely. Antiplatelet antibody testing is currently not sufficient to provide good evidence for or against a diagnosis of ITP. H. pylori testing is recommended in endemic areas given the relationship between H. pylori infection and chronic ITP. 
There is also insufficient evidence to recommend routine use of antiphospholipid antibody and anti-nuclear antibody testing, thrombopoietin levels, or platelet parameters obtained on automated analyzers. The clinical manifestations of ITP include bleeding. There is substantial inter-individual variation in the bleeding phenotype, however. The most common type of bleeding is mucosal bleeding, and spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage is rare, especially when the platelet count is greater than 20,000. Some other factors that might increase the risk for bleeding include advanced age, a prior history of bleeding, and the use of antiplatelet and anticoagulant agents. ITP also can have a dramatic impact on the health-related quality of life of our patients. Many of these patients express feeling fatigued, they worry about their bleeding, they're having side effects from their medications, and all of this results in limited activities. There is also some evidence to suggest that perhaps there is an increase in thrombotic rates with patients with ITP. However, the true etiology of this association remains unclear. When evaluating somebody clinically for the diagnosis of ITP, we're simultaneously trying to use our physical exam to rule in ITP, while at the same time ruling out other etiologies of the thrombocytopenia. What we're really looking for is isolated mucocutaneous bleeding. This can be in the form of hematomas, oral blisters, and oral mucosal bleeding, petechiae, and bruising. We're also looking, though, for signs of any red cell breakdown, such as jaundice. The patient should not have hepatosplenomegaly or lymphadenopathy as well on our exam. When we think about the goal of treatment of ITP, our goal is really to achieve normal hemostasis, and this may occur prior to reaching a normal platelet count. So we don't have to aim for an immediate platelet count that goes up into the range of 150 to 450,000, but may be sufficient just to bring the patient into the range of 30,000 if that's what provides adequate hemostasis. Again, there's always additional considerations beyond the platelet count that we need to be thinking about. These include age, the need for any upcoming surgeries, any comorbidities or medications that are associated with a risk of bleeding? And then are there any additional symptoms such as fatigue or health-related quality of life that need to be addressed and that treatment may help with? So I touched on upfront and first-line therapies, and in some patients, this may simply include observation and education. The dose of this is just time. It takes time for our patients to get better, and that response can be anywhere from one week to indefinite. As I mentioned earlier, in pediatric patients, oftentimes with even a week, we're going to see a benefit of just watching and waiting, whereas in an adult, some patients without therapy may indefinitely live with ITP. The side effect of this is that there is that risk of bleeding in a patient that we continue to just watch and wait with a low platelet count, again, because the goal of our therapy is really to try to achieve normal hemostasis. So some patients may benefit from simple observation with a lot of education about what to present to medical care for, and this is the more common approach in the pediatric population, as I'll show you when we talk about guidelines. You have corticosteroid options for adults. This is either with prednisone or dexamethasone. And the course is slightly longer with about 21 days of therapy and or two repeated courses of dexamethasone. In children, we favor shorter courses of five to seven days, short bursts of corticosteroids. Regardless of what corticosteroid pathway is chosen, there's really a push to not have patients be on corticosteroids for indefinite long periods of time. The time to response is about three to four days in most patients with really good initial response rates of 60 to 80%. However, one of the limitations of corticosteroids is that the majority of patients will rebound following or relapse following discontinuation of the corticosteroids. 
They're also associated with significant side effects that include mood changes, hypertension, hyperglycemia, gastritis, and these all need to be monitored very closely by the physician while the patient is taking these medications. IVIG can be given in doses of 0.8 to 1 grams for either one or two doses to a max of two grams per kilo. The effect is rather quick. So this is a good agent for a patient that has acute bleeding when they present that you need to quickly stop. It works within about 24 to 48 hours and has good response rates. However, it's very limited. The effects will eventually wear off. This does not provide a lasting remission. It's also associated with an infusion reaction. It can have headaches and aseptic meningitis. Oftentimes, this brings patients back to medical attention and results in increased medical cost. And then it's also associated with thrombosis, and there is an FDA black box warning for renal failure. Anti-D immunoglobulin or WINRO can be provided in one dose. It also has rapid effect of 24 to 48 hour onset with good response rates. However, it does also, again, similar to IVIG, not provide a durable response and is associated with significant side effects. These include hemolysis being the most predominant with about a two gram decline in hemoglobin. So this becomes then obviously not the ideal therapy for a patient who is experiencing bleeding and already has some degree of decline in hemoglobin on presentation. It also requires that a patient have an intact spleen, and it also requires that a patient be RH positive. And while it's available in the United States, it is not available in other areas such as the UK. There's also an FDA black box warning for fatal intravascular hemolysis that resulted in patients. So again, while we have current therapies, they all have their own limitations and side effects, and therefore there is always a need to develop new and novel therapies. This highlights one of the recommendations from the American Society of Hematology recent guidelines. This is recommendation 1A, in which it states that in adults with newly diagnosed ITP and a platelet count of less than 30,000 who are asymptomatic or have minor cutaneous bleeding, the panel suggested corticosteroids rather than management with observation. But it was very clear from this recommendation that the exact platelet count threshold at which bleeding risk increases in the natural history of newly diagnosed patients in ITP with a platelet count of less than 30,000 managed with observation is not really known. And in fact, other consensus documents have said that it's a platelet count less than 20,000. So it's possible that at higher platelet counts within this population or in younger patients, observation may be a reasonable approach. And then always consideration needs to be given to those additional factors that might alter a patient's bleeding risk. Recommendation four stated that in adults with newly diagnosed ITP requiring corticosteroids, there was no real preference between prednisone or dexamethasone. Similar to the previous recommendation, this was again conditional, which is why the word suggest is used. And it was based on very low certainty in the evidence. So much like the last question, there was really not robust data to inform that recommendation. There was some thought, however, that if a rapid increase in the platelet count was more important, an initial course of dexamethasone over prednisone may be preferred, given that there was some data that dexamethasone showed an increased desirable effect with regards to response at seven days. There was actually also a good practice statement associated with this guideline that did recommend close monitoring for the side effects of corticosteroids and not to use them for a prolonged duration. This provides an overview of the 2019 American Society of Guidelines related to adults with newly diagnosed ITP. You can see here the recommendation that we discussed for patients with a platelet count less than 30,000 who were asymptomatic or had minor bleeding. 
the panel did also consider a platelet count greater than 30,000, in which case observation was the suggested treatment. And then also the panel looked at whether or not patients should be treated as an inpatient or an outpatient really trying to favor outpatient management when feasible. And this came from a strong push to improve patients' quality of life by not having them have to be admitted to the hospital so frequently. It was thought that perhaps the new inpatient setting was preferred for a new patient where you're really trying to establish good care. Again, there was a push for a short course of corticosteroids, whether or not prednisone or dexamethasone was used. And so in those patients, either one is preferred, but again, for short courses. With regards to the American Society of Hematology guidelines, there was some difference, however, with pediatric practice in newly diagnosed patients, really just highlighting that for the majority of children, severe and significant bleeding is quite rare, that most children don't have the same comorbidities and other risk factors that adults do, as well as the fact that the majority of children will self-resolve from their ITP rather quickly. And so for this reason, in the pediatric recommendations, there was a much stronger suggestion towards observation over treatment with either corticosteroids, IVIG, or anti-D for a child who presented with no or mild bleeding. It was also really felt that in children, the platelet count is not as important. The focus is really on the clinical picture and how that child is presenting clinically, not so much a platelet threshold. So in adults, the threshold was 30,000. In the pediatric population, there was really no threshold applied. It was based on clinical symptoms. It was also recommended very strongly that observation be considered over IVIG and anti-D rather than just a conditional recommendation. And that was because of the increased side effects associated with IVIG and anti-D in a child who had no or mild bleeding only, regardless of the platelet count. So shifting focus just a little bit here to second line therapy, I'm going to talk about the agents in which the time of the American Society of Hematology guidelines, there was the most robust data. And we've already touched on these a little bit, but these included splenectomy, rituximab, and the TPORAs. So when we think about these, splenectomy, the mechanism is really quite simple. We're removing the source of platelet destruction. The time to response is anywhere from one to about 60 days. It can happen quite quickly once you clamp the vessel leading to the spleen. And induction rates are really quite good at about 90% with long-term remissions of about 60 to 70% in older cohorts. Rituximab works primarily by B cell depletion, but may also induce some T cell changes that are important. It similarly will work within, in some patients a week, but more about two weeks given the dosing. And some patients can experience a delayed response. The initial response rate is about 50 to 70%. However, long-term remission looking five years out is projected to be as low as 20%. The TPORAs work in this novel way of increasing platelet production. There's some emerging data that perhaps they're also involved in immune modulation. So similar to hemophilia patients with an inhibitor, exposing to high volume of the antigen eventually seems to burn out the immune system in an immune modulatory way, such that some patients have been able to have a increased platelet count with drug removal. The time to response on average is about 14 days, but can take longer depending upon how long it takes to dose increase the patient to the max dose. Induction rates are anywhere from 40 to 60%, and there really is no true durable response once the drug is discontinued. So once these drugs are stopped, the increased platelet production decreases, 
And most patients will return back to their baseline platelet count. If not, some patients even exhibit rebound thrombocytopenia and go a little bit lower. However, as I mentioned, there is some emerging data that there are some patients that are able to come off these medications and still maintain an adequate platelet count that is higher than when they started. So I think that's a new and interesting area that we'll learn more about with these agents. So I mentioned splenectomy. Splenectomy's response, we get remission in about two-thirds of patients. We do need to be mindful, though, the risk of infection in these patients. And so we need to vaccinate against encapsulated organisms and provide lifelong fever precautions and antibiotic prophylaxis. There also is a potential for thrombosis risk. And so that's shown here. This does just show that increased risk, potential risk of splenectomy associated with venous thromboembolism and sepsis risk as well in patients with ITP. So while splenectomy is very good historical therapy, it's not without its risks. And these risks are long-term. So once you remove the spleen, that risk persists for the lifespan of that individual patient. Rituximab, as mentioned, shows really good early remission rates, but sustained remission rates remain much lower. It does involve immune modulation, but it's not fully understood. It definitely reduces circulating B cells. It may be involved in restoring the Th1, Th2 profile. It increases RT regulatory cell number and function. It is associated, however, with significant adverse events. These include infusion reactions, but then more significant can lead to serum sickness an immediate, very severe hypersensitivity reaction. It can reactivate viral infections. And then in some patients, we've seen developments of common variable immune deficiency, which is rituximab related, in which those patients don't reconstitute normal immunoglobulin function following rituximab and have persistent hypogammaglobulinemia. It's a little unclear whether this is just uncovering a patient that might've had common variable immune deficiency that was undetected prior to giving rituximab, or if this is only in the population of patients that maybe have ITP associated with a bigger degree of immune dysregulation. So I think there's a lot of work being done to really understand how can we identify and predict those patients that will develop the persistent hypogammaglobulinemia. Another limitation of rituximab is we don't fully know what dose is needed for patients with ITP. The dose that we apply has really been extrapolated from cancer trials, and we're clearly treating a different disease here. So it may be that we're overdosing patients and exposing them to greater side effect risk without really understanding if that provides any significant benefit. Thrombopoietin is synthesized primarily in the liver. The platelets bind to TPO. So with thrombocytopenia, we have a shift from bound to free TPO, and this increases binding to megakaryocytes and precursors. In ITP, the rapid clearance of platelets, along with the bound TPO, blunts our TPO levels and contributes to a relative deficiency of TPO. There's been a lot of development for the TPORAs. These include ramipostim, L-thrombopag, avathrombopag, and lusothrombopag. As mentioned earlier, discontinuation results in thrombocytopenia. However, we are starting to learn more about durable responses. And reports suggest no cross-resistance. So patients who fail one of these may actually have a response to a different agent. They've all been shown to increase the platelet count, decrease bleeding, and reduce the need for additional medications, with some also showing improvement in different aspects of health-related quality of life. Those patients who exhibit a sustained remission following use are those that may have had some degree of immune tolerance with restoration of T and B regulatory cells being the key component. 
The primary concern for side effects with regards to the TPO initially was bone marrow reticulin formation and transformation of the bone marrow. The EXTEND study nicely addressed this, showing that no patients prospectively developed grade three reticulin or symptoms of bone marrow dysfunction or a blast count greater than 3% while taking a thrombopag. With regards to thromboembolic events, the event rate of three to four approximate per 100 patient years really showed no increased risk in a significant meta-analysis of our nipple stem. And again, it's very hard to tell, is this a disease effect or a drug effect? A thrombopag is also associated with hepatotoxicity with approximately 10% of patients having drug-induced liver insufficiency, which was reversible with drug discontinuation. Remipilstem study data did show that the majority of patients were able to maintain a platelet count over 50,000 throughout the study visits. The same was seen in Althrombopag in the EXTEND study showing long-term durable response rates in most patients with the ability to maintain a platelet count of over 50,000 as an entire study group. And again, this is very similar to data of avathrombopag. So in general, these agents all show similar results for being able to induce a long-term response while staying on therapy. The American Society of Hematology guidelines position these agents each against the other. So they position rituximab against splenectomy, splenectomy against a TPORA, and a TPORA against rituximab. As you can see, this is very complex, and each of these agents has a very different side effect profile, a mode of administration, as well as duration of therapy. What the panel came up with was that they suggested rituximab rather than splenectomy. They suggested TPORAs rather than rituximab, and they suggested either splenectomy or the TPORAs. All of these were considered conditional recommendations based on very low confidence in the evidence. And this was in patients who had persistent ITP for greater than three months who required treatment. So those who had failed a course of corticosteroids. As you can see, there's also a lot of heterogeneity within this patient group. What ultimately came about was the need for a really individualized patient therapy. In this setting, the guidelines did provide the foundation to help clinicians work through shared decision-making with patients. So evaluating where the patient is in the course of their disease, what their goals and priorities are for treatment, and what symptoms they're having and what platelet count we're trying to achieve. And I really think by aligning goals with patient goals and discussing these options with our patients is when we can really truly achieve an individualized treatment plan that will result in successful therapy. At the time that these guidelines came out, there was not robust data on a newer agent, fostamatinib. Fostamatinib showed good results in phase three clinical trials. And while the overall response was only 43%, it was important to note that these patients were a group of very highly previously treated patients. When the investigators looked at use of this drug just as simple, straightforward second-line therapy, overall response rate was much higher at 78%. The most commonly reported adverse events included diarrhea and hypertension, along with nausea, vomiting, dizziness, and some trans ammonitis. All were resolved or were managed by dose reduction or dose interruption. So as we can see, we have many advantages and disadvantages of our approved therapy. Remipyl stem and L-thrombopag and avathrombopag show good response rates, but associated with high cost and the need for ongoing treatment and with some side effects, although not as predominant based on our current data with regards to bone marrow reticulum. 
We do have immune modulators such as rituximab. Rituximab, while showing great initial response rates, which may delay the need for splenectomy or other therapies, was not successful at inducing long-term remission rates when we look out as far as five years. So we do have high relapsed rates. I mean, we do have viral reactivation in these patients and a tendency for infections, as well as the risk of associated progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which we did not talk about previously, and has mainly been seen in patients that have been receiving concomitant therapy with a lot of other immune modulators, as well as rituximab. Fostamatinib, I think, is a new agent that when we look at it in second line, may show better results than the population in which it was initially tested. It's going to be interesting to see how it positions itself against our more historical therapies and the novel TPORAs. Because of the side effects of diarrhea and hypertension, the thought is that this drug may not be as well tolerated as some of the other second-line agents. But again, I think more work to be done. With regards to splenectomy, while it's very good durable therapy, it does confer surgical risks as well as the risk of thromboembolic events, as we touched on, and infection, which is a lifelong risk. So there is this lifelong risk of sepsis and a need to adjust the lifestyle of a patient in the sense that they have to be seen promptly for fever and going over fever precautions with them. So now let's look at the newer emerging therapies in ITP. We'll discuss the recent clinical evidence on some of these novel therapies and gain insight on integrating them into day-to-day -day clinical practice when they become available. We have a couple new categories of novel therapy development. These include the FCRN blockers, which increase antiplatelet antibody clearance, thus decreasing peripheral platelet destruction and the immune response against the megakaryocytes. As you can see here, there's several under development. We do have phase two data on one of the FCRN receptor blockers in patients with primary ITP showing good results. We also have complement inhibitors that decrease complement dependent cytotoxicity, which has been a novel, more recently discovered component of platelet destruction. We also have the BTK inhibitors that decrease platelet destruction by inhibition of macrophage phagocytosis. Also, the phase three advanced trial showed good and similar results using a second FCRN receptor blocker. A potential benefit of these agents is that they don't have to be given daily, and the way in which they're delivered is either IV or sub-Q. With regards to our complement blockers, we do have some preliminary data from a phase one trial, which shows that this drug can result in a rapid and durable increase in the platelet count in patients with chronic ITP. A mean increase of greater than 50,000 by day one was maintained, and the thrombocytopenia did recur when this was discontinued, but platelet counts recovered upon retreatment. So again, this is another drug that then would require ongoing therapy. And there's a phase two study that's ongoing to evaluate the safety, efficacy, and tolerability. So now let's look at the mechanism of action of the novel BTK inhibitors, such as rizlobutinib. Brutantyrosine kinase, also known as BTK, is an enzyme with a major role in both the innate and adaptive immune responses. BTK contributes significantly in the proliferation and differentiation of B cells. It also has a role in myeloid cell inflammatory cytokine production. Thus, today BTK is being investigated as a promising target for the treatment of immunological disorders, including ITP. Rilzabrutinib, or PRN1008, is an oral reversible covalent selective BTK inhibitor. Reversible BTK binding allows rapid restoration of BTK function following Rilzabrutinib withdrawal and reduces off-target effects. A significant advantage of Rilzabrutinib is that only short exposure is required to get a clinical benefit. 
low systemic exposure reduces adverse events, increases tolerability, and promotes its effectiveness. BTK inhibitors such as rilzabrutinib generate activity against autoimmune diseases via targeting of adaptive and innate immune response. For example, in targeting adaptive immune response, rilzabrutinib inhibits B-cell activation through inhibition of the BCR and inhibits plasma cell differentiation and antibody production. However, it doesn't cause B-cell depletion or cellular cytotoxicity. Unlike other BTK inhibitors, rilzabrutinib is not associated with platelet aggregation or loss in healthy volunteers and patients with ITP. Rilzabrutinib also inhibits autoantibody production as part of its targeting of adaptive immune response. Beyond the B cell, BTK is also expressed in many innate immune cells, which are primed for rapid immune responses. Rilzabrutinib rapidly and effectively inhibits antibody-mediated immune cell activation via FC receptor signaling including of mast cells and basophils, and monocytes and macrophages. Finally, rilzabrutinib's inhibition of BTK also results in mitigation of neutrophil recruitment, which could be beneficial for patients with immune-mediated disorders. So you've just seen how rilzabrutinib works. Now let's talk more about the recent clinical evidence and how to integrate this novel inhibitor into our day-to-day -day practice. So BTK inhibition modulates components of adaptive and innate immunity associated with autoimmune diseases. Rizabutinib is an oral reversible covalent small molecule inhibitor selective for BTK. And preclinical data suggests that improved kinase selectivity and fewer off-target effects compared to the other BTK inhibitors that many of you may be familiar with using. This drug has been studied in a phase 1-2 randomized double-blind dose escalation study. In this study, the dose was escalated to as high as a dose of 400 milligrams BID, with the primary endpoint being two or more consecutive platelet counts greater than 50,000 without requiring rescue medication. Additional endpoints included any two platelet counts greater than 50,000, platelet responses over time, a stable platelet count response, as well as safety data. Platelet count responses on patients that received the full dose of 400 milligram BID, including those with prior splenectomy and with or without a response to prior treatments, after 24 weeks was 50%. At 12 weeks, it was also 50%, showing that there was a good response, a durable response, out as far as 24 weeks that was maintained compared to data at 12 weeks. The response was slightly better in patients who had received less than three therapies at 50% compared to those who had greater than three or more previous therapies at only 38%. Oral rizbutinib at 400 milligrams BID was also well tolerated and had a durable, clinically significant platelet count response across multiple subgroups and with extended treatment in patients that were heavily pretreated for their ITP, some of which included patients who had received greater than three therapies. With regards to safety data, related adverse events were reported in 21 patients, and all were transient and were rated as grade one or two with no related serious adverse events. No treatment-related bleeding or thrombotic events were seen, and there was no significant change in the ITP-BAP bleeding scale from baseline to the last visit. The safety profile is consistent with safety observed to date in Pemphigus 1, the other setting in which this drug has been used. So in summary, oral rizabutinib was well-tolerated across all doses with no thrombotic events. It is now being trialed in a phase three trial, the LUNA-3 trial, of which we await results.
The choice of second line treatment really should be individualized based on duration of ITP, frequency of bleeding episodes requiring hospitalization or rescue medications, accounting for patient comorbidities, their ability to adhere to different treatment regimens, medical and social support networks, as well as their own patient values preferences. We always should be mindful of costs, particularly the downstream out-of-pocket costs to our families, as well as drug availability. If possible, splenectomy really should be delayed for as long as possible after the diagnosis because of the potential for spontaneous remission in a subpopulation of patients, as well as the fact that it really does confer lifelong risks. Patient education and shared decision-making is strongly encouraged to decrease adverse side effects and enhance long-term remission and meeting patient goals. The need for patient enrollment on clinical trials to further patient-personalized ITP management, along with trial data that focuses on patient-related outcomes, is highly critical and important. In conclusion, ITP remains a diagnosis of exclusion. The management of ITP in both adults and children is based on clinical symptoms and consideration of additional risk factors. Expanding the knowledge about the pathophysiology of ITP has led to really exciting new drug development that may provide treatment options for the most refractory patients. That concludes our exploration of recent advances in ITP and the implications of current and novel emerging therapy differences in ITP management. I hope you found this program interesting and useful for your practice, and thank you for joining me. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GAS 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi U.S.